Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Chi Odogu. On this episode of the podcast in the segment I've titled the Summer Personal Development Series, I am going to be talking to Eric Brotman. Eric is the CEO of Brotman Financial Group. He's going to be teaching us about finance and tax planning, especially if you want to preserve and protect your wealth for the future. We're going to be talking about everything that has to do with money, building wealth, building capital, how to protect your investments, and of course, how to plan for the future because we all know that nothing goes on without finances like the old saying goes. No romance without finance. Basically, nothing goes around without finance. So if you don't have your money right, chances are you're going to be in a whole world of problem. So in order to avoid those money problems that eventually creep up in every person's life, Eric has come on the show today to share some wise strategies and principles of how to preserve, protect, and perpetuate your wealth. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the interview over to Eric, and then we're going to get the party started. So this way you get your money game up even while you're sipping your Mai Tais on the beach. I mean, who loves you if not Chio Dogu and the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast? All right, guys, listen in, take plenty of notes, and of course, have a great week. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. My guest today is Eric Brotman. Eric is the founder, president, and managing principal of the Brotman Financial Group. The Brotman Financial Group is a financial planning and wealth management company that specializes in providing comprehensive financial planning advice and strategies to families in the United States. They currently have over 300 families and they manage over $300 million across 25 states in the United States. And of course, they're growing and acquiring clients every day. Eric is here to tell us a little bit about himself, his business and his experiences growing his company from just him and one employee when he started in 2005 till today where he has over 14 people working with him. He's the author of the book titled Retire Wealthy, the tools you need to help you build lasting wealth on your own or with a financial advisor, as well as the book titled Debt Free for Life, the tools you need to free yourself from debt. I'm pleased to have him on the show today. He's a noted speaker. He writes columns for many national publications, and of course, he's featured in TV in the Baltimore area. So with that said, Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Chi. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So Eric, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. You know, how did you get to being the CEO of a major financial planning and wealth management company in the Baltimore area? Uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say it was, uh, I feel a little bit like Forrest Gump. Some of it was by accident. <laughs> um, you know, I, I studied English and psychology in school and my plan was to go to law school. And um, when I took a job out of school in a brokerage firm, a major uh, wirehouse, I, I fell in love with the brokerage business, decided not to go to law school and said, boy, I, I really like the financial end. Uh, I did my CFP in 1998, um, helped another firm do a startup uh, from 2000 to 2003, uh, and then launched Brotman Financial Group in October of 03. And uh, this is our 15th year. Uh, we've just made our, our 16th uh, hire, hmm. and we're growing exponentially. We're having a whole lot of fun doing it. Oh, man, that's awesome. So it sounds like you actually diverted from your initial goal from wanting to be a lawyer to finance. So tell us a little bit more about that, because um, what did you particularly love about finance when you worked in that brokerage? 
it, it's funny because it had less to do with finance and, and economics and math and more to do with people. Um, mm. I, I was in the uh, I was in the legal department for a brokerage firm and I was helping to settle estates. Okay. So when when a family had a death in the family and they owned securities or, or had accounts, I was being called in to, to help the family deal with uh, all the uh, operational things, all the protocol that had to happen to go through probate, probate and so forth. And what I found was that these people were not only bereaved and under under incredible stress, but I couldn't help them very much because mm. all of the things that I was doing, it was now after the fact. Yeah. And I said, well, if I can get myself on, fr- you know, in front of that, where mm-hmm. I can help people make sure things are titled right, and that beneficiaries are right, and that their their wishes are are really going to come to light, not only during their lifetime but after their lifetime, um, then that would be a much more special engagement rather than just helping people, you know, check a box and file paperwork. I mean, that clearly was it's an important role, but not something I wanted to do for a, for a career. So, yeah. um, I, I fell in love with that piece, and I still specialize on the estate planning wealth transfer side. Uh, we help to build legacies. We help to look at retirement as much more than just a math problem uh, and much more about a lifestyle. And and we're really trying to redefine retirement mm. because uh, I think we've been doing it wrong in this country and, and in fact, in, in the developed world for a long time. Okay. So we're going to come back to that redefine retirement. But launching your business, I know when you started, it couldn't have been easy. You know, you worked somewhere, you didn't like it, and then you got into this business. So tell us a little bit more about the starting your business process. What was it like for you when you said, I'm going to hang out my own shingle and then I'm going to help uh, people manage their assets properly? It was a combination of exhilaration and horror. <laughs> um, uh, partly because I was excited to do it, but also realized I had just borrowed money from everywhere you can fathom. Mm. You know, there there wasn't a bank on earth that was willing to lend me money, um, mm. and so I borrowed from everywhere. I borrowed from credit cards. I borrowed from my home. I borrowed from my life insurance. I borrowed from my family where I could, um, and it, it was really a, a scary thing because I was hanging at the end of that credit line in a very big way, mm-hmm. and um, I had a business plan, and uh, I had. Done Done some coaching. I had an executive coach who helped me make the, the transition. Um, I had a very small clientele at that point who mm. were going to follow me from the former firm. We, mm. you know, we had a, a an agreement that allowed me to do that without any acrimony, which was great. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a divorce. It wasn't anything ugly. It was more of a graduation and an opportunity. So that was a good thing. Um, but I really started with with uh, a bunch of debt, uh, essentially no salary, and working seven days a week, uh, I hired two people, um, and my primary objective was to make sure that their checks cleared so they'd stay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that was a, it was an incredible experience and, and one, that, um, uh, one that's hard to replicate. There's very, yeah. few, uh, very few steps that you take in a professional life, quite as scary as a launch like that. Okay. And you being the people person, being the man out there on the front trying to gain clients and gain business to grow your company. Um, Tell us a little bit more about some of the strategies you use to convince people to be clients of your new company, because I'm sure it must have been very difficult being a young man back in the, I don't know your age now, but I'm pretty sure you were a a young spry lad back in the day when you started, correct? 
Uh, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, I started my career in my early 20s and oh, launched wow. a firm in my early 30s. So mm. it was I, I was ahead of the curve in some ways, although, you know, I'm in my mid 40s now and I'm no longer the precocious one. You yeah. know, I, I used to be the, the young up and comer. And now I'm just some middle aged guy. But um, what I would say was I tried non-traditional ways to drive business because mm. what I didn't want to do was call my family and friends and ask them for their business. Yeah, because there's no quicker way to turn off friends than to, to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'd like you to become a customer or a client of mine. Yeah. So instead, what I did, I, I did three things, basically. Um, I, I joined networking organizations, membership organizations, things like chambers of commerce and mm-hmm. local business associations. And I didn't just join. I got myself on their membership committee and on their boards so that I could be introducing myself to other folks around town favorably where they would take my call and I could say, hi, I'm here from the Chamber of Commerce. And oh, by the way, guess what I do for a living? Mm. Uh, and that became a very uh, warm entree. And I, I got to know people. Second thing I did was I, I learned a seminar system. I learned a, um, a, a talk and it was just about IRAs. It was about individual retirement accounts. It was very basic. But I found places at the time that would that would promote me because this was before the internet and before social media. There was no yeah. way to to get that word out. I wasn't going to blast facts everyone. It just doesn't work. So mm-hmm. and direct mail doesn't work. So what I did, um, I found some of the local bookstores that okay. were willing to promote me as a speaker in okay. their circulars in exchange for my mentioning books that were on their shelves for sale on the topic on which I was speaking. Mm. So that I essentially could get free publicity, um, a free setup, chairs and AV and all the equipment and everything I needed in exchange for promoting some of the, some of the product on their shelves. And it was a perfect partnership, and I still have clients that I can date to that. Um, and then the third thing I did, I did lots of trade shows. Mm. And I mean, I just wanted to learn how to do it. And I didn't have a fancy booth. I was just there to shake hands and kiss babies a little bit. But um, I, I learned how to do it and I learned how to, how to talk to folks. And I learned not only sort of the, the elevator pitch, but more importantly, just the way to ingratiate yourself with people. Yeah. Um, and all those things were helpful. And then when it came to family and friends, instead of asking them to become clients, I asked them for help. I asked them to help me promote. I asked them to, to, to tell me, gosh, if you were in my shoes and you were starting this business, who would you call and mm-hmm. what would you do? And they were all willing to help me. And they never got asked. And of course, lots of them have become clients over the years, but I never asked them to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, they approached me and said, you know, I'm glad you're in this business. I, I'd really like to talk to you. And that's terrific. Totally different dynamic. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, those strategies you just mentioned now, I think are are so powerful and I think a lot of people need to replay what you just said because basically you are putting yourself right in front of where your potential clients could be. You know, you put yourself in a situation where you're in a chamber of commerce on the membership committee. If you call somebody, of course they'll take the chamber of commerce call and they'll say, Hey, by the way, this is what I do. You know, it's very easy to segue into your profession when the person is already warmed up to you as opposed to you trying to cold call and sell them. You also went out and you practiced in, um, uh, I beg your pardon, the trade shows where you were meeting people, talking to people, and just you know getting more exposure for yourself and for your brand. I re- I really love those statements. So when you moved into you know things are going and growing, you know it's we're past twenty two thousand and five. We're getting close to two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, when the big recession hit. What were some of the things that happened to you and to your business, and how did you weather the storm during that challenging situation? Uh, 2008, September of 2008, and for the next six weeks or so, 
um, no doubt was the, the most difficult time to be in the wealth management business. Yeah. People were scared. Yeah. Um, uh, accounts were dropping. Um, and I, I think people were really in need of a lot of handholding and a lot of help. Um, we actually use use that period of time. We grew during that period of time, which is, uh, again, a little bit bucking the trend. But yeah. the way we did it was we were so in front of people and so transparent and so communicative that where some advisors were, were literally hiding, sort of using the ostrich approach and having their head in the sand – we were out in front of folks. We were saying, we are not sure exactly what this is going to look like, but mm -hmm. here's what we're doing. Here's how we're positioning you, and here's what we're, we're, we're attempting, and this is what we think is going to happen, um, that we gained enough new business from advisors who were essentially absent yeah. that our total revenue drop for that year was 2% year over year. Wow. Um, and in a, in a year where equity markets dropped 40%, for our business to be down 2% was a giant win. Yeah. It wasn't fun. I never worked so hard in my life. Yeah. But but it was but it was it was rewarding and because of that we've developed an incredible following and have wonderful retention, wonderful client loyalty, wonderful employee loyalty and uh, and we have lots of folks who are staying with us knowing that when the next crisis comes and it will. Yeah. We don't know what it'll look like or when it'll be or anything like that, but they know we're going to handle it. Mm. And so I think there's some comfort around knowing that we've been through, uh, you know, we've been through rough seas before. Yeah. You never want to hire a captain who's never seen rough seas. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So tell us now tactically, because this is a show for entrepreneurs and people that want to be entrepreneurs. So tell us tactically some of the things you did to weather the storm. You've told us about the situation, how you guys handled it. You know, you were only dropping 2% year over year, but in that moment, you know, you, you worked the hardest you've ever worked in your life. What were some of those things you were doing that kept you you ahead of the game compared to your competitors? Um, I think the first thing was being fully present and being real honest about not knowing the answers. Mm. I think there's an incredible um, – when you, when you can empathize with someone and you can share that, look, I, I have fear that you have. I understand what you're going through on some level. I'm going through some of it too. Yeah. And um, – I don't have the answers. There's no magic button. I, uh, so let's get through this together and let's put ourselves on the same side of the equation. And that was helpful. You know, we did some tactical things. We, we, we certainly had a hiring freeze at that point. We yeah. didn't want to have to let anybody go, but mm -hmm. we stopped hiring. Um, I took a pay cut um, so that we'd make sure that we could weather the, the, the storm in terms of the, the P&L. Yeah. And that was fine. So I certainly made less money that year than the year before. And that was fine. That's part of the deal when you're an entrepreneur. Um, but we still turned a profit for the year. And we only had a 2% reduction in revenue because we were out and about. And we were meeting new prospective clients all the time. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, I haven't heard from my guy or gal. And it's been a month our account is down. Would you talk to us? And the answer is, of course, come on in, let's talk. Mm. And so that was very, very helpful. Um, I, I just think, and, and we used, we used a lot of messaging. A lot of it was email and social media, a lot of messaging that went out all the time saying, here's what happened. Here's where we are. Here's what the strategy is. And we really did build portfolios designed to weather storms. We oh. certainly didn't know what was coming. Yeah. I, I'd be, I'd be lying if I said, <laughs> Oh yeah, we saw that. Uh, we didn't. Um, but we do build portfolios with, um, with the idea in mind that there's going to be a period of time, whether it's a year or two years or five years or eight years, mm -hmm. where there's either stagnation or a drop in various markets that we need to weather. Okay. And if you're, if you're 30 years old, you largely don't care. Mm -hmm. If you're 75, you might not care if you've built it right. 
But if you're 55 and thinking of retiring, it is really scary to have that happen right before you're contemplating a change. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, it created a ripple effect of people not retiring, delaying some retirement, which affected hiring and affected unemployment and affected millennials. And there's been an unbelievable – I mean, we could – go on and on about the, the the ripple effect from the recession. But for us, it created opportunity. And once the markets began to recover, it created exponential growth. Oh, love that. Love that. So you took a contrarian approach to setting up the portfolios, right? And then you also took a, what I call it, a more aggressive approach to talking to people and generating leads and doing business development, whereas everybody else was afraid and wringing their hands. You were still going up out there, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, comforting people, telling them, you know, everything is okay. You know, your portfolios have been segregated and um, allocated appropriately so that, you know what, no matter what happens in the drop in the market, you will still be able to have current income, which which is key because a lot of people always worry, especially millennials, and we'll get to that in a minute, that, you know, when things go bad, they might not be able to maintain their lifestyle. But having a portfolio that has been optimized to at least keep you, you know, Maybe not at your current lifestyle, but at least you'll be fed, you pay your rent, and you pay your bills. And that's what most people need most of the, most of the time. Agreed. I, I agree completely. If you know where your income is coming from and how predictable it will be for a period of time, it can allow you to ride out the storm on your other portion of the portfolio. Mm. And as long as you're not – I never want to see somebody withdrawing from a total return portfolio during down markets. Yeah. And what I mean by that is if you've got everything in one bucket – and the market starts to drop and you start pulling out of that, you, you never really recover. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. Whereas if you segregate them and you have one bucket that you know is conservative, that you know is going to create income and you know is going to take care of you, the other bucket might be dropping precipitously, but you know you have time to let it recover. You're not making withdrawals. Yeah. In fact, you might even be making deposits. And if that's the case, you will recover. It's just a matter of how long it takes. Hmm. And uh, it was a it was an approach that, while markets go straight up, we don't always look uh, as good as some of the competition. In other words, you know, we're not we're not cowboys. We're not speculative, and we're not trying to beat any any index. Hmm. We're trying to maintain lifestyle uh, after taxes, um, in light of inflation, and on an ongoing perpetual basis. Because we don't know if somebody's going to turn, you know, somebody's going to live to be their 80 or 110. And you don't know if the money is still going to be around or we're going to use coconuts or bananas or something. That's exactly. In fact, it's funny. I used to say the exact same thing. I said, if 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 the currency fails, we got bigger problems than your statement. Yeah. Um, and and I, I used to say, oh, we'll be trading my coconuts for your bananas in no time. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so some of the knockout effects of the um, recession in 2008, well, affected millennials a lot and i think the main thing it taught millennials was that you know there's no job security out there and as much as a lot of the economy has recovered we've all learned now that you know you can't expect to stay with one company for the rest of your life so people switch jobs frequently even more than the previous generations so when it comes to thinking about retirement and you know financial planning and wealth planning from a millennial perspective, what are, what are some advice you would um, offer to this group of people? Um, well, the, the first thing is, in light of the fact that millennials are changing jobs much more frequently than others, they have to keep an eye on their total compensation package, not just their salary, and also have to keep an eye on the vesting schedule for various benefits. 
because a lot of these companies have matching programs and profit sharing and other things where they're putting money into a retirement plan. But if you're only there for two or three years or even four, you may not get to take all that with you. It might actually go to other folks instead of you if you leave. So Mm -hmm. it's real important to understand the vesting schedule and if you're going to make a change to make sure that the, the difference in salary is not the only conversation. Because you're definitely leaving money on the table anytime you leave, and if that can't be made up, then even a, a, a modestly higher salary, unless there's dramatic upside potential, isn't enough. Yeah. It's not enough of a reason to go. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's important that millennials have coined a term called the side hustle that I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, I had never heard this before about a year ago. Um, and the side hustle essentially is also doing some freelancing, some consulting, some some side gig in addition to their primary work mm-hmm. so that, again, if something happens with their company, if their company closes or lets everybody go or there's some kind of change and there's a gap uh, in, in your earning period, that you have something else immediately to, to, to dive into where you're still going to pay the rent. Mm. And, and I actually think it's a real important thing and a real smart thing to, to have those skill sets. Um, it does mean millennials are going to work harder than maybe their parents and their parents' parents, yeah. but they're also free agents. Yeah. And so you can't have it both ways. You can't be a free agent and expect the gold watch after 30 years. Yeah. It's one or the other. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know a lot of millennials graduate from college and they're saddled with so much debt to the point where they actually have to have these side hustles in order to pay off the debt and also survive. So... You are the author of the book, you know, Debt Free for Life, you know, tools you need to free yourself from debt. So talk a little bit more about, you know, dealing with debt and then being able to go from being in a state of debt to aggressively building your wealth and your nest egg for the future. Well, I'm glad to. The first thing is the best way to deal with that is not to get into it in the first place. Mm. Um, And actually, for the first time, I think we're seeing... Uh, high school students and their parents have more frank conversations about the cost of school. Mm-hmm. I think I think even some teenagers are much savvier than we were. I, I don't know how old a gentleman you are either, but I presume <laughs> you're not straight out of school, my friend. No, so, um, that is 35, <laughs> sorry. There you go. Okay, so, yeah. so uh, we probably didn't think about the price tag in the same way that kids today are. Yeah. And there's a, there's a tendency now because – uh, undergraduate education is really not a ticket to much of anything mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. I think it makes not a lot of sense to spend a lot of money on undergraduate school. Because if you if you wind up in debt from undergrad school and then decide to go to graduate school, you're compounding a problem. Mm-hmm. So as an undergraduate, if you're able to get work study or you're able to get grants or scholarships or you're able to do uh, two years at community college before you go and, and get the four-year degree mm-hmm. – Unless you're in a top 10 or 20 school in the country, it probably doesn't make sense to pay for it mm-hmm. like it was a top 10 or 20. Some yeah. of the most expensive schools in the country are not do not have the prestige or the alumni network to warrant that kind of – or the professors, frankly, to warrant that kind of, uh, of expense. Yeah. So I think it's important to try and price college and use the, the packages that are being offered as part of the decision factor because every college – has um, a, a, a published rate. Here's the tuition, room and board. This is what it costs. Very few students actually pay that. Mm-hmm. And there's a discount rate at every school, and the schools are now competing for students. Yes. And they're competing for students. Be- they're competing for students because there are more schools than there need to be based on the current student population. Mm-hmm. So now it's a it's a chooser uh, choosing opportunity for the students. 
in a way that it wasn't before. And I'm not talking about the elite institutions. I'm talking about your average college or university. Mm. They're going to put a package together because they want you. If you can do the work and you can add to their community, they're going to want you and they're going to come, come up with a way to do it financially. Yeah. Don't borrow a ton of money for undergrad school. The only loans I like to see for that are the subsidized loans where you're at least not having interest accrue until you graduate. Yeah. You know, grad school is a little different because a lot of times you can either find an employer to help with that or you can, you can anticipate an income that will allow you to pay for it. Okay. I don't worry as much about law school or, or, or um, med school. I do worry a little about business school because I'm not sure how good an MBA is anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure how valuable that degree is. I mean, I certainly explored it at one point in my life and decided to go in a different direction. And, and, and today I'm glad I do. I, I think the MBA is becoming very, very watered down. Yeah. And I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how useful it is to spend that kind of time and money. Yeah, especially now where you have, because um, I graduated from business school, I was thinking about it almost uh, nine years ago, and we didn't have podcasts like this or all the videos on YouTube or whatever. You can pretty much teach yourself an MBA in the span of six months by just listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos. You don't need to And it won't, it won't cost you $100,000 either. A, I don't even think it will cost you 300 <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> it will cost you some Wi-Fi. That's yeah. about it. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with you there. So moving from that, so let's let's shatter another one of the conventional wisdoms, which says, okay, you know what? You've gone to school, you come out of school, you're working. Next thing is, you know what? You know, either you get married to your sweetheart or you find somebody, but buy a house and you know build some equity in that because you never know. You know, a couple of years you will sell it and you make some money. So tell us a little bit more about that. What do, what, what do you think of that conventional wisdom, and Should we buy houses now? Well, some of us should, but okay. I think the idea that we all should be homeowners is fraught with problems. Mm. Um, a house is never a good investment. I mean, never. I know we had the real estate bubble where folks were flipping and thought, boy, this is the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. That, was an ano- that was an anomaly. That's not normal. Under normal circumstances, homes appreciate by about 2% a year. Mm-hmm. But when you own a home, the things that you have to pay for, not just roofs and driveways and garages, but you're also redoing bathrooms and kitchens, and you're spending a fortune on these things. A house is not a good investment. It's good for nesting. It's good for psychology. Um, but but remember that the generation before us, these folks went to work for a company for 30 years so yeah. they could put roots down. They uh-huh. knew where their house was going to be because they knew where their job was going to be. Uh-huh. But today you take millennials and they are you know, they're newlyweds and they're contemplating a house and they might be buying a house in Atlanta and then in six months taking a job in Seattle. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, it's very, very difficult for the current young generation to put down roots anywhere unless they have some control over the outcome of the geography, a la they are entrepreneurial, they're starting a business, or they're working for a company where it doesn't matter where they are geographically. But if you're, if you're working for XYZ company in Wilmington, Delaware, and they decide to transfer you to Jacksonville, Florida, you're moving. Hmm. And so, or, or you're not employed there anymore. And so I, I think it, it doesn't make sense for everyone to buy a home. I think families that want to put down roots uh, and want to stay in a community, it certainly is a, a good thing to do. It certainly helps your balance sheet long term. But in the short run, it's much more expensive to buy than to rent, especially if you have to move. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have to move in the first five to seven years, you're usually going to get clobbered. Hmm. And on top of that, the new tax bill that limits your uh, what you can deduct of state income tax and real estate tax. Mm-hmm. 
makes it even less favorable to own a home now, particularly in states with high income taxes. Okay. So you find a, a state with no state income tax, you know, Florida, great deal. New Jersey, New York, not, not so a great much. deal. Yeah. Right. So basically, it's all about looking at, you know, what your life circumstance and situation is going to be in the near future and then organizing your life in such a way that you can take advantage of where your job is going to be, where your income is going to come from. And then, of course, as your family needs grow, you can always scale up in terms of renting from a one-bedroom to a two-bedroom. But unless you're 100% sure that you're going to stay in one place for a long period of time, it's, it's not a great idea. Or the alternative is you can invest in a property that's going to be an income-generating property, correct? Oh, absolutely. Real estate can be a great investment. It's just not a great investment if you live in it. If you live <laughs> <laughs> Because you're not paying yourself rent. Yeah. So you're not making money on the deal. If you're, if you're both the owner, if you're the landlord and the tenant, you're not making money. If you're the mm -hmm. landlord, you know, yes, there are some benefits to um, either commercial or residential real estate where you can create income. Yeah. Where you can create cash flow and where you can take advantage of deductions that exist on a uh, on a business level, on a Schedule E level, rather than on a, a Schedule A level with your personal taxes. Mm. Wow, man, I love that. I love that. So as we start to wind down the show, Eric, I just want to ask you some quick rapid fire questions. I know that part of what you do and one of the passions you have is uh, financial literacy, especially for young people. And I'm not just talking about uh, millennials now. So tell us more about why financial literacy is so important, especially talking to children or aging parents who either have reached the point of retirement and then, you know, are thinking of the next phase of their lives. Financial literacy is important, like, like traditional literacy, like being able to read yeah. in, in the sense that if you can't make your own financial decisions and you don't have the right uh, wherewithal and acumen to do that, not only are you cannon fodder and could be taken advantage of, but you're also missing out on a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. I, I see education as failing a lot of our young people. You know, we, we, we are testing ad nauseum for English and math, so to speak, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure we're preparing kids for the next stage of their lives. Uh, and I think if you can name the planets in order, but you can't balance a checkbook, I'm not sure we've done you any, any favors. Yeah. So I do think financial literacy matters. I also think that it needs to be done at a nonprofit level rather than a governmental level. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of problems with financial literacy education formally in schools. Um, teachers unions are an issue with that. Uh, not, not everybody knows it well enough to teach it. Uh, and so it's a it's a bit of a hot potato in ways that I don't think I expected when I got into the into the the quest to to drive financial literacy. Um, what I would say is that everyone should have some form of course, whether it's for credit, whether it's not for credit. It should be objective. It should and and there's plenty of them online. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can find them just like you were talking about your MBA. Mm -hmm. You can find financial literacy courses online. Um, there is software around that. There's Investopedia, which does a nice job with some of those things. You can yeah. find these. They're either free you're inexpensive. But I do think young people need to understand um, money because they are going to make huge financial decisions as teenagers, yeah. not just, you know, about a car, but about college. You know, do you really borrow 50 or 60 or $80,000 to go to XYZ school when you could go to the state school for, for nothing maybe oh. um, or without a loan? Does it make sense? And a 17-year-old is not adequately prepared to make those decisions. They can't even fathom what that means. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, um, for seniors, I think the seniors probably have it the worst because um, there comes a point where you really aren't in a position to just go make more. I mean, the beauty of the side hustle and millennials and younger people is that if, if you wind up in a, in, a, um, in a bind, you can just work more. You can make more money. You can take a second job. You can do some other things. Seniors have a tough time doing that, particularly once they've, once they've allowed their skills to lapse. Mm-hmm. So I think it's real important to be lifetime learners. It's real important for folks who retire not to fully disappear and disengage, but instead to graduate to another form of uh, another stage of life. I mean, 65, when, when Social Security was created and pensions were created, 65 was old. Mm. 65 is no longer old. Yeah. It's not close to old. Yeah. I mean, if you're healthy, there's no reason you can't work till 80 doing something you love. Yeah. I don't mean punching the clock for somebody else. I mean doing something that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what's his name? Warren Buffett, he still works on here. He's over 80, and I think his partner, too, is close to 90. But they enjoy what they do. <laughs> Well, they do, and they're making a living you where I could get used to. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be comfortable with that. Yeah. So, um, being an entrepreneur in the financial services space, you know, tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, what was your biggest challenge or your biggest um, mistake when you got into business for yourself, and how did you overcome it? Uh, the the biggest well the biggest mistake I guess to to start with was feeling like I had to create an office space that would that would create some form of immediate credibility so I, I overshot the target in terms of what we paid for rent because I thought it was important to be in a trophy building okay that did not make sense uh, for the most part I'm not sure clients care and the yeah. ones who do aren't necessarily the best clients you, you'll have yeah so I, I think we probably should have uh, been more modest in our in our staging for the first office okay um, and we should have had more space but in a less prestigious building mm. because then we would have had room to grow without having to move so uh, that was a lo- uh, that was a learning experience for sure mm-hmm. biggest challenge. The biggest challenges uh, then are the same ones they are today, mm. and they are people and technology. You have to have the right people in the right roles, and then you have to keep them. Yeah. And you have to have the right technology creating efficiencies, and you have to utilize them and, and do, use them right. And I don't think that challenge from 15 years ago is any different than it is today. The only difference is we now have more people and more technology than we did, but I think they're still the two most critical issues facing any business. And the third one, if you were to add a third, would be client retention, you know, client acquisition and client retention. Okay. But at least in our business, it's more important to keep clients happy than it is to make new clients. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Now, you mentioned uh, having people in the right roles and then having them utilized. I know you've acquired two companies in recent years. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, your growth through acquisition and what it looks like for you going down the road. I know you're in your mid-40s now, but thinking about, you know, succession planning, expanding your business, adding more people to your team, you know, tell us that whole thought process for you. Uh, Well, first and foremost, the the merger and acquisitions that we've done, we have added two senior financial advisors to our team in the last 24 months or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, One actually owned her own firm in Cincinnati, Ohio, and closed it up and moved to Baltimore. And we uh, brought her into the, uh, and, and brought her into the fold and it allowed us to staff up and so forth. The second one moved from a, uh, an area of Columbia, Maryland, sort of midway between DC and Baltimore. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and she is just onboarding now, and her clients are just sort of coming on board now, which is great. Uh, it has caused us to hire, so we're adding four people, which uh, when you're a firm of 12 and you, you add four, that's a pretty significant jump. Yeah. Um, we're also we also just signed a 10-year extension on our building to uh, to grow our space. So we're taking on another 2,500 square feet uh, and building it out so it's a real comfortable spot for our for our team. So that's for succession planning. I, I started doing succession planning in my 30s. I started selling wow. stock, selling stock to employees. Um, you know, so people thought I was nuts. They said, you know, if you're a farmer, you don't sell your watermelons till they're fully grown because mm-hmm. you're going to sell them per pound. Yeah. But the fact is, if I didn't start selling stock to young people and not giving it to them, selling it at fair value, but mm-hmm. if I wasn't doing that, I was going to lose the superstars. The best people were going to say, you know what? I want to do what you did and I want to do it somewhere else. Yeah. If my former firm had allowed me to do the things that I'm allowing our people to do, I might still be there. Hmm. So, uh, you know, not only do young people want um, – they want uh, life balance and they, they want to feel good about what they're doing. And there's a lot of millennial changes to that, um, different than the Gen Xers. But they also want a defined career path and they ultimately want to know, can they have equity? Hmm. And what are the rules? And for us, it's very simple. The rules are, yes, you, you, there, are, there is a path to equity. It's a five to 10-year path. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never given. It's always bought. Yeah. And we'll help them figure out the financing and, and figure out how to do it. But you know, I, I, I am hopeful that I'll continue to sell stock such that when I'm 60 or so, which is getting closer than I ever thought, than I ever thought <laughs> it would. But when I get there – It creeps up on I, you. <laughs> It does. I'm, I'm hopeful that I will have a different stage of life balance. I'll be empty nested at that point. Uh, and my hope would be that I'll still be very much involved, but that I won't be the managing partner anymore, that we'll have other folks who are involved at a higher level, and that I'll continue to sell stock on the way out mm. uh, and continue to help the company grow and continue to, to do PR and uh, work in the media and, and bring in clients, but not necessarily be quite in the trenches in the same way. Yeah, yeah. And does that does that mean you're going to retain your name as is now, or you're going to transform into you know, uh, I, I don't even know what to say. Timon- no, I know. If you, if Timonium you financial. Honestly, no, it won't be that. That's like the hundred ninth element of the world. Um, it, uh, we have to change our name. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm not trying to be uh, you know uh, um, uh, Edelman or Carson. I mean, I, I I see some of these huge firms that do that. Mm-hmm. We are actively. We've actually hired a a team to help us with a branding exercise to see about renaming the firm. I think it's real important to get my name off the door. Mm. Um, and as big a deal as that was when I was getting started, because it created clout and credibility yeah. and name awareness, now it's actually holding us back. Because I, I do think when your name's on the door, people want to talk to you personally, and I yeah. may not even be the best person to talk to about various things. So, yeah. um, no, my, my ego is taking a very big backseat to, uh, to my rational thought, and that is we absolutely have to rebrand. I just don't want it to be cliche or sound like everybody else. Mm. So if you have any great ideas, I'll take them. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll think about it because I, I, I love what you said because as much as you're an entrepreneur, you're serving clients, you're also thinking about the future. You know, you want people to stay with you, especially the superstars. You want them to stay with you, to grow with you, and they want to have ownership stake in the game. You know, when you buy into a company and it's like oh, Eric Bronfman, you almost at the back of your mind think, okay, maybe his son or his daughter is going to come and take over. But, you know, when you expand and you transform into an uh, well, I call it a, a branded institution. I don't, I don't know have any other words to call it except like. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. that's good. 
like a branded institution, people are like, okay, yes, I can buy into this because this is something that can stand forever and it's not going to be like a family business where I just work here and have nominal equity in the business. Exactly. I, I, I completely understand. I completely agree with you. And we are we're on that right now. We're working with our advisory board. Uh, we're working with a, a, a firm to help us with some branding. We had come up with a name we were excited about and went out and bought the domains and everything else and then found out there was a trademark issue. So Ooh. it's difficult. It's yeah. very difficult to find something that is that is uniquely yours, that speaks to your value proposition and speaks to who you are without sounding cliche no. and um it, it's tough it, i think it's going to take us a little while but we're we're starting the engagement formally in june uh, i would love to say it'll take six months but it could take 18 it, yeah. it's just a matter of uh, of what it, but but all of our folks know that we're doing this our board knows we're doing it i'm prepared for it uh emotionally because i am giving up that uh the 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 name on the door so to speak but I, i'm ready for that it's mm. the right thing to do yeah no cool cool and um, I think my second to the last question is for people listening to this program, especially if they're small business owners, for example, just like you, you know, and in as much as we've talked about retirement, we've talked about personal finance, talk a little bit more about, you know, being able to manage and grow a small business to the point where as you're doing now, you're scaling, you're adding people. And of course, you're thinking of transforming for the future. So tell us a little bit about some of the advice you would give a small business owner that is still trying to figure things out. Uh, the first piece of advice that I'll, I'll give him or her is, are you sure you want that? Because, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I'm not trying to talk people out of entrepreneurship, but yeah. what I am saying is, do you want to grow into an organization that will have a management team of its own, mm. or do you want to maintain a lifestyle business or a lifestyle practice that allows you to have flexibility and control? And there, there's pros and cons to both. You know, we elected to go the route of an internal management team. I functionally hired my own boss, mm. you know what I mean, which is great, um, and she's wonderful, and, and I just do what she says. But um, the, the, the fact is, as a small business, you have to decide, are you going to give up management control? Mm -hmm. Are you going to give up day-to-day -day control uh, and decision-making? Because as soon as you do that, it's a different um, psychological feeling to it, and you have to be sure that you want that. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't want that, it's very simple. You you maximize profits. You find another organization that does something similar to you, and you create a um, essentially a contingency plan with one another that mm -hmm. says, "Look, if something happens to me, will you take this over, uh, or vice versa?" And you you can do that in almost any line of work. But if you're going to build the, the full company and the full management team, first thing you have to do is hire the right people. Mm -hmm. um, it means hire the right advisors, have the right financial person, the right tax person, the right lawyer. Um, make sure your right hand is, is ready to go. Have a, a chief operating officer or an office manager or somebody who will handle the day-to-day -day management responsibilities so that you don't have to. Because ultimately, that's not what gets you paid. It's not what makes clients happy. Um, and, and I do think that it's the kind of thing that you have to figure out how to outsource or you'll never grow. Uh, and for entrepreneurs and listeners of this show that are thinking, man, I really like what Eric has done and I want to be like Eric in the next five, 10 years. What are some of the tools you've used to help you become a better entrepreneur, a better leader and a better financial planner or a wealth manager? Um, first question is sort of on the leadership front. I did two things. One, I hired an executive coach 
Um, and she's magnificent. I, I have worked with a, a coach now for an extended period of time. She has facilitated retreats for us. She's helped us with hiring. She's also helped me with, with personal coaching. And people say, well, what in the world do I need a coach for? And I, I, I see it as the, the elite athletes still have their coaches, uh-huh. not because they're not elite, but because they want to stay there. Yeah. So don't look at it as a, some kind of failure to hire a coach is actually a, a sign of, uh, of upward mobility. Second thing is I found local leadership programs in our state and in our county, and they're across the country. I did a leadership Baltimore County. I did leadership Maryland and got very involved with that and have met the movers and shakers of all, uh, all across our state, whether it's in government, whether it's in business, whether it's in education, uh, whether it's in nonprofits. And it's opened incredible doors by just having the best network there is. And so I would tell folks to do that for sure, whether it's Leadership Pittsburgh or Leadership Albuquerque, wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, in terms of the second part of your question, which was you know, not so much the leadership piece but the financial planning piece, um, that was simple. I stayed in school. Mm. I've been in school since I got out of school. I have more <laughs> letters in my bio. It looks ridiculous, and I certainly don't put them all on my business card. But I stayed in school. I'm constantly learning. I have, I, we pay for education for our employees so that our team is constantly learning. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure we're at the top of our game, and that means constant practice. Mm. Great. Man, it's, Eric, it's been a pleasure talking to you for the past 45 minutes or so. I've really learned a ton, not just about, you know, personal finance, but just about, you know, being a better professional, regardless of what industry you want to be in. So before I let you go, where can people find you, get to know more about you personally, get to know more about your business? Of course, contact you guys if they say, hey, maybe I should have Eric and his team take a look at my portfolio and see if they can help me out. Sure. Uh, two, two answers to that question. The first is uh, our website, which will link you to, to the, the company, is brotmanfinancial.com. That's B-R-O-T-M-A-N financial.com. Uh, and the other thing is we just published uh, an ebook on tax saving strategies, which people have found very, very helpful. It's a, an easy read, but it's saving people money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's at lowtaxbook.com and it's free. It's a download mm-hmm. and it'll give you a chance to get to know us a little bit and also to get some information that you can use right away. Great. And I'll link to all that in the show notes. Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and share your words of wisdom with us, with me specifically, and of course, with the listeners listening to the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Great. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.